Plastic traditionally refers to the pliability and shapeability of a material. So clay is typically a very plastic substance, as you can easily shape and reshape it, stretch it out and bunch it back up. Its plasticity is a key component of why it's so useful to us. The term plastic became commonly colloquially applied to a category of materials called polymers in the mid to late 20th century after World War II, primarily with a negative implication. Polymers are abundant in nature, and substances like cellulose, which is the material that makes up the cellular walls of plants, are polymers. Cellulose is made up of long chains of molecules, hence the name, which means many parts. We've been using natural polymers like rubber and cotton and starch pretty much since we discovered them and their useful plasticity. But the first synthetic, human-made polymer was invented by a man named John Wesley Hyatt in 1869 in the pursuit of a $10,000 reward for anyone who could come up with a suitable synthetic replacement for ivory, a natural substance that was very limited and thus increasingly expensive to source, but also increasingly necessary due particularly to the popularization of billiards, which at the time necessitated the use of ivory balls. Hyatt treated cellulose that he refined from cotton with a substance called camphor, another natural substance that is derived from a few different types of tree, which allowed him to create an ivory-like material that could be produced in essentially any shape he wanted, and in far more abundant quantities than ivory since the production of ivory generally required the killing of elephants for their tusks. The resultant substance could also be made to replicate the properties of horn, tortoise shell, linen, and other comparably expensive and finite natural materials. So the billiards industry was excited about this innovation, but so was the materials world as a whole. Up until this point in history, production of anything was generally limited to the quantity and quality of resources that could be harvested from the natural world, including, in some cases, the killing of certain animals for their tusks, teeth, horns, and so on. But if not animals, most materials were sourced from plants or minerals, which were also limited in terms of what we could harvest or mine. The promise of this material which was called parkasine and xylenite by earlier inventors who got part of the way to producing a viable product but never got it to market, and which was eventually dubbed celluloid by Hyatt, was that humanity would no longer be limited by nature in terms of what we could produce. We could create as much of any material as we wanted, and we wouldn't need an ever-growing supply of rubber plantations or elephant herds to get it. That dream was expounded upon in 1907 when Leo Bakeland invented the first fully synthetic plastic, which he called Bakelite. Celluloid, while synthetic in that it was made by humans, not by natural processes, was still made up of natural materials, cellulose and camphor, among other naturally sourced resources that were then combined in non-natural ways. Bakelite 
was produced as a byproduct of a search to come up with a synthetic substitute for shellac, which was a natural insulator that was in increasingly high demand at the time due to the rapid electrification of the United States, electricity and electric lights only recently having been made available on the consumer market, but very quickly growing in popularity. But this material required an almost laughably high number of insects, called lacbugs, to produce. It's estimated that somewhere between 50,000 and 300,000 lacbugs were required to produce just one kilogram, which is about 2.2 pounds, of shellac. The bugs sucking the sap out of the trees on which they lived to produce sticky little tunnels of this substance, and to process it, workers would scrape these tunnels and all the bugs inside them off the trees, would hold the bag of scrapings over a fire to liquefy the substance, which would then in turn allow that liquefied sap to seep out of the canvas of the bag, while the dead bugs and bark and other detritus was left behind to be discarded. The substance would then be dried out and sold as little chunks or flakes, which would later be activated by the end user, the customer, who would crush it into a powder and mix it with alcohol to use it. The invention of Bakelite, then, in addition to saving the lives of countless lacbugs, also saved a great deal of time and effort in terms of production. This fully synthetic replacement was also found to be incredibly versatile, shapeable into all kinds of products, durable enough to survive different use cases, heat-resistant, and mass-producible. It was marketed as the material of a thousand uses, and that was probably an understatement, especially at a time in which no other mass-producible fully synthetic polymers existed. Chemical companies around the world, but especially in the comparably well-developed markets of the United States and the United Kingdom, saw Bakelite and its success and decided to make their own patentable versions of the same. The first half of the 20th century was awash with novel, partially and fully synthetic polymers, most of which were not produced with any specific use case in mind. The companies were just seeing what they could come up with and then figuring out what it might be used for after the fact. When World War II was declared, these production chops became a massive wartime advantage for those who knew how to make these materials. Synthetic silks were used to make body armor, parachutes, rope, and helmet liners, for instance, while plexiglass was used for aircraft windows. The production of plastics increased by 300% in the United States over the course of the war, and post-war, that production continued. The chemical companies that were making parachutes and plexiglass turning their attention to car components, furniture, and cookware. The public's taste for plastic products hasn't ever truly waned in the sense of plastic disappearing from use or becoming a true materials pariah. But in 1962, Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring first made the public aware of the human and environmental damage that could be caused by the overuse of pesticides and a series of oil spills and other environmental catastrophes, including the heavily polluted Cuyahoga River in Ohio catching fire, began to sour some people on the utopian promise of plastics. They were still being used for just about everything, and new variations with exciting and interesting new properties were being developed what seemed like every day. But their reputation had diminished substantially by the 70s and 80s, 
as environmental scientists made us more aware of the damage being done to our ecosystems around the world, and the role that single-use plastics in particular played in the destruction of these ecosystems became more clear by the turn of the century. What I'd like to talk about today is modern plastics and some interesting new developments in how we handle the most common and most environmentally destructive varieties. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled Newly Engineered Enzyme Can Break Down Plastic to Raw Materials. Polyethylene terephthalene, or PET, is the most common type of plastic on the planet, in part because it's one of the most versatile and useful. PET can be stretched out into super-thin high-tensile films like mylar and various productized applications, as is the case with anything made out of terylene, lavsin, or dacron, the UK, Russian, and US brand names for PET. But most of us are most likely to encounter PET in the shape of plastic drink bottles or synthetic fibers. About 30% of global demand for PET was for soda and bottled water containers. We go through these at a rate of about 1 million a minute globally as of 2013. And over 60% of total PET output went toward the production of polyester, which is the nearly ubiquitous textile designation under which this material is sold. PET is also commonly used for clamshell packaging, the thin plastic, usually transparent or mostly transparent plastic packages used to ship and sell food, electronics, and other goods. And for microfiber towels, mylar balloons, mylar being another trade name for this substance, and some frozen dinner trays, the cartons containing microwavable meals. Again, part of why this substance is so widespread is that it is so incredibly versatile and useful. PET is cheap and relatively easy to produce, is resilient enough to survive all kinds of conditions and use cases, and is generally colorless, lightweight, impact-resistant, and safe. Research kicked off by a piece published in 2010 indicates that endocrine disruptors, which are basically chemicals that can mess with the human endocrine system in such a way that they could theoretically cause cancer, birth defects, and similar ailments. That 2010 study indicates that endocrine disruptors may emerge from PET during the course of common use, which challenges that safe attribute though follow-up research in 2012 indicated that the concentration of such disruptive chemicals within bottles, like the kind used for bottled water, were still within the European Union's acceptable range. It was found that they could, on occasion, go beyond that range if you stored some soda or water in a bottle at room temperature for less than a year, though. So while this probably isn't something to be truly worried about in most cases, it's also not nothing, and it could be of particular concern for those who are wanting to store bottled water for longer periods in case of an emergency, or for similar use cases. So while PET is generally considered safe for most of its applications, that is something to be aware of. Also concerning is the fact that these bottles and other materials made from PET end up all over the place, 
infused into ecosystems of all shapes and sizes. And as a result, that concern about leaching could become a more significant issue, because these bottles and textiles don't degrade the way other materials might, and thus they sit in these natural environments for very long periods of time. That long lifespan is a good thing in the context of wanting to make shirts and socks that don't fall apart as we wear them, and water bottles that don't disintegrate before we have a chance to buy them. But it's significantly less good in the sense that a discarded water bottle could sit in a lake for years if left uncollected, and that can lead to all kinds of problems. From the creation of microplastics due to erosion, the bottle breaking down into smaller bits of plastic and then eaten by wildlife, to the potential leaching of chemicals into the environment, which could then impact the wildlife in probably not super desirable but also difficult to detect ways. Now, PET is, in some applications at least, more recyclable than other types of plastic, in part because of the economics of its production. The resin it can be recycled into, which is then used to make more PET, is relatively valuable, and thus it's often worth the cost to recycle it, which is not the case with other types of plastics. But it's also more recyclable, because it's so ubiquitous in certain use cases. Almost all plastic bottles are made of PET, as are almost all polyester fibers, non-food containers, and other such products and materials. As a result, it's a relatively simple thing to collect all the bottles and process them for resin, which can then be made into more bottles, whereas other types of products and materials would need to be sorted based on the type of plastic used, which is an effort-intensive and expensive process, and one that many plastic recapturing entities are not keen to undertake to begin with, because it wouldn't be economically sustainable for them. It would cost them more to collect, sort, and process all those different types of plastics than they would make in return. It's just cheaper to make new ones. In 2016, a bacteria was identified that can break down and metabolize PET. This bacteria, Idianella sakaiensis, uses two enzymes to hydrolyze the plastic, which means to break it down through a chemical reaction with water, and that, in turn, provides it with the energy it requires to survive and grow. These microbes are interesting in that they provide us, potentially at least, with a partial solution, or at least some examples to use as inspiration, as to how we might break down the plastics that would otherwise end up in our natural environments, lasting for ages, leaching chemicals into these ecosystems, and being worn down into microplastic that ends up in the stomachs of local animals. Bacteria that digests the plastic, breaking it up into natural, harmless components, could be part of the solution to this problem. Unfortunately, this digestion mechanism also breaks down the carbon backbone of the PET, which means in practice that it is no longer recyclable. It's too far broken down. This isn't the end of the world if our intention is to have these bottles and other products degrade completely, becoming harmless. But if we want to create a renewable cycle that requires less input over time in terms of raw materials, because we're able to reuse the materials previously used in similar products to make new ones, that becomes an issue. We cannot reuse completely broken down plastics in that way. This article in Ars Technica describes a new approach 
a group of researchers in France have taken to try to optimize enzymes for digesting PET in a way that retains the resulting substance's use for future PET products, breaking the stuff down, but not too far, ensuring it can still be recycled. The solution they came up with was to augment an enzyme that naturally evolved to break down other natural polymers. These enzymes could still sort of break down PET, but not all forms of it, not completely, and not very fast. The researchers created mutant versions of these enzymes that had amplified capabilities when it came to PET digestion, and they upped the ability of the enzymes to survive at high temperatures, which allowed them to be used during PET heating processes that disorder the more ordered crystalline form of the plastic, which is typically more difficult to break down unless you heat it up to around 65 degrees Celsius, which is around 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So the heat disorders the structural arrangement and strength of the plastic, and the enzymes can then work to break down that plastic in this newly disordered and less sturdy form. The original enzyme the researchers started out with could digest something like half of the PET they were working on in about 20 hours. The mutated version of the enzyme that they created could digest 85% of the PET in only 15 hours. By optimizing the conditions in which the experiment was taking place, though, including disordering the crystalline PET by heating it up, they could break down 90% of the PET in just under 10 hours. This means that by utilizing this mutant enzyme and this process, the researchers were able to take 1,000 kilograms of waste plastic and convert it into 863 kilograms of raw materials ready to be reused in just under 10 hours, which is wild. That's more efficient than our digestive enzymes that we humans have when it comes to breaking down starches. That said, this process is not, at this point at least, cheaper than using petrochemicals to just make new PET instead of recycling PET. The enzyme itself is expected to cost around 4% of what new plastic costs to make, but acquiring, preparing, and processing used plastic materials is not cheap. So the overall cost of this process is expected to be higher than producing virgin plastic for some time, especially if oil prices stay low. That said, this process is being celebrated by many interests within the industry, from those who are involved in making plastics currently to those who are interested in keeping plastics out of natural environments. The enthusiasm of that latter group stems from the fact that creating a sustainable, low-impact recycling mechanism for this very common type of plastic would probably make it a lot more likely that goods created from this plastic would be recaptured after they're used. Infrastructure for reclaiming plastic bottles becomes more thinkable when there's a reliable and cheap mechanism on the other end for turning that bottle back into a usable raw material. And especially if governments and other entities incentivize the use of this and similar processes, it becomes advantageous for the companies using these products to figure out how to get consumers to deposit their bottles, their clamshell packaging, and their polyester clothing into the right bins when they're done with them, which will allow them to be easily and more cheaply collected and then enzymatically recouped back into the plastic cycle. The plastic production executives and other industry interest groups 
are maybe less obviously inclined to be happy about mechanisms that solve a problem that they don't want anyone to focus on overmuch. But there's actually a decent amount of enthusiasm within this cadre, because this is an industry that is taking a public relations beating over the past few decades, and if their product can be made to be more sustainable, that means that they're no longer the industry making the single-use plastic bags that are showing up on the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest point in the ocean, and a place where, when we first explored it, one of the first things that we saw on that deepest part of the planet that we visited was a plastic grocery bag waiting for us. I suspect many people in this industry would be happy with even just a PR win without true practicality behind it, just the implication of sustainability. But the fact that this is likely to become a real deal thing is probably even better, because if they can close the loop on resources, they might even be able to profit on a closed system over which they have more control, rather than relying as heavily on the ebbs and flows of the international petroleum industry and its associated politics. A closed recycling loop for these most common plastics, in other words, would make their system more controllable which makes it more likely that their costs will decrease over time and their externalities will be converted into more knowable, predictable, internal variables. The company behind this research, Carbios, has said that they intend to have this process up and ready for industrial-scale recycling within five years, and that it's already partnered with major corporations like Pepsi and L'Oreal to utilize this technology and create closed-loop systems. And these are pretty good partners for such an ambition, because they are some of the current biggest polluters in terms of plastic waste, which is definitely not something that they are thrilled about, and this gives them a way to be part of the solution to that problem, while also netting them a short-term public relations win. So by 2024 or 2025, Carbios expects to have a large-scale system utilizing this technology up and running, and they hope will be working with these and other major corporations that utilize such plastics as a key component of their product offering to expand its reach further. This is not the only game in town when it comes to this type of technology, but researchers working on other options, variations on the same theme with other entities, have said that they think Carbios will get there first and have applauded Carbios's efforts to make this a reality, rather than just a theoretical, maybe someday, sort of thing. Notably, too, we've recently discovered other sorts of natural solutions to our plastic issues, including a bacterium that breaks down polyurethane, a type of plastic that is commonly used in insulation and shoes and sponges, and which is generally quite toxic as it breaks down releasing all kinds of chemicals that typically kill nearby bacteria alongside everything else. But this particular bacterium seems to enjoy it, using the chemical compounds released from that breakdown process to feed itself and reproduce. A type of fungi that also breaks down polyurethane was discovered back in 2011, but apparently this was assessed with purely scientific interest rather than with any practical utility in mind as bacteria are easier to utilize within industrial processes, which means they could actually be used to break down plastics on scale, predictably, rather than just in small pockets where the fungi happens to have grown naturally. One concern here that seems to be at least somewhat warranted 
is that these plastic-eating bacteria will escape their industrial bonds and make their way into the human world, which is filled to the brim with delicious plastics of all shapes and sizes, which they might then want to munch on. This is part of why those working on these sorts of mechanisms are focusing on industrial applications, rather than simply releasing them into the wild and hoping that they eat the discarded water bottles that have ended up all over the place in the natural world. There's a pretty good horror story to be told, I think, about the mutated bacterium with the altered enzymes and ability to survive higher-than-normal temperatures that escapes the lab and starts to eat a significant chunk of modern infrastructure. Everything made out of plastic, including our medical equipment, our digital technologies, and the lenses on our glasses, alongside all of our polyester clothing, insulation, plastic gadgets, and a surprising percentage of our motor vehicle structural components. It's important to note that these things, these bacterium and fungi, already exist in our environment, though. Again, there are naturally involved versions of these things that we know about that eat plastic out there in the world. And a consumer goods apocalypse has not happened yet as a result of that. Almost certainly, at least in part, because it's relatively easier to derive useful energy and life-sustaining nutrition from just about anything else rather than from processed plastics like PET and polyurethane. The wee beasties that eat this stuff in nature, are usually rare extremophiles, barely surviving and eating plastics because there are no other suitable options. That said, it is not unthinkable and impossible, especially as we mutate these things further to make them better at what they do, that we could accidentally create something that is more able to survive in the wild, more likely to outcompete other entities that occupy its niche and more likely to survive the things that we would normally do to kill bacterium or fungi that we want gone. I can imagine a scenario in which some kind of Greenpeace-like organization liberates and then looses mutated plastic-digesting bacterium into the world, intending to save the planet from polluting humans, hoping that the release of these little life forms might help digest away much of the pollution that we've created over time but their efforts accidentally end up dissolving much of the infrastructure that is helping us move forward. The components that we use with solar power and wind turbines, the insulation on homes, which lessens the amount of energy required to keep people warm during the winter and cool during the summer. Like any potent force, in other words, this technology can cut both ways, and it seems likely that if it exists, we'll see incredible and beneficial uses alongside uses that many of us would consider to be questionable, but which somebody will no doubt be able to justify through the lens of their sincerely held ideology. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. This is a straightforward, fun book. The thing that I kept thinking as I was reading it is that it's kind of a combination of Jessica Jones and Harry Potter, where the main character is somewhat Jessica Jones-ish and is a private investigator, but the world in which she lives is one that has magic and schools of magic and things of that nature. And the book plays with a couple of the tropes involved in both of those more established genres, but it combines in an interesting way, and it's overall just a fun book to read. 
If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Magic for Liars by Sarah Gailey. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.